Well, Pastor Shelton, it is my joy and privilege to be the first uh, to bring God's word to you as a minister of the gospel who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Presbytery has appointed me to give you a charge. Charge is not a sermon. It's a charge. It's an exhortation. And I would direct your attention to words found at the end of Colossians chapter 4, a charge drawn from the example of one named Epaphras. In verse, this is Colossians 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. There are dates that stick fast in all of our minds. And just as you will never forget the day of your wedding, so too this day, the day in which you were ordained to the gospel ministry, will remain in your memory uh, for as long as you live uh, in this world. There is something notable that has happened, a heavenly transaction that we have been called upon to witness. And so it's an important day for you, memorable day for you. But I want to set another day before you, and that is the last day. Because as a minister of the gospel, you are to live with the last day always in front of you, always before your gaze. I would exhort you especially with regards to the fact that you have been called to be a servant. That's what the word minister means, to be a servant, a servant of servants. And there are three ways in which we we see that here. First of all, I would exhort and charge you to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The language here is Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ in chapter 1. Verse 7, it says, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So first and foremost, I would charge you to be a minister or servant of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is your first point of identity. This is what is foremost in terms of the obligations that fall to you. And it becomes evident as soon as you begin to ask, where are your eyes? To whom do you look? Do you you look to yourself? Do you look to your labor? Do you look to your people? Do you look to the presbytery? Where are your eyes? And for a servant, the eyes are always on the master. Your eyes are to be first and foremost upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This induces, of course, a great deal of accountability. We're walking in the fear of the Lord and we're We're walking under his all-seeing gaze and we're seeking to please and honor him first and foremost. So it brings accountability to us. It also brings a heavy measure of consolation to us because his eyes see what no one else can see. All that is happening in us and with us and through us and by us. And we are able to gather armfuls of comfort in the fellowship that is had with him in the labor laboring with him and for him and for his, his glory. The call to the ministry is a call to die. It is clearly and unequivocally a call to die in all of the, 
the furthest extent of what that entails. You've been called this evening to die. You may be called upon in the course of your ministry to ultimately die for the Lord and in the labor of the Lord within, within the ministry. But you're called to die perpetually, right? The, this is the word that Jesus gives to his disciples. You're to take up your cross, you're to deny yourself every day, and you're to follow me. It's a call to perpetual death. That means dying to all of your own self-interest. You, when you chose under the blessing of God, when you, when you said yes to the ministry, you simultaneously said no to innumerable other things. Other things that others can pursue, other things that others can enjoy. You said no to those in saying yes to the gospel ministry. You have chosen to die to those things. I mean, men in your congregation will have, you know, be able to labor for 40 or 50 hours a week. You won't have that luxury. You'll be on call 24-7. And in a real sense, you'll never, ever be off duty. And you'll find yourself at times in the wee hours of the morning or late at night, as well as uh, early before the day breaks at work when others are resting. There will be all sorts of things that others have the liberty to pursue, to pursue in leisure and in their, in, their, in their recreation and so on. And you will have to say, others may, I cannot. This is not a loss for you. This is a gain. Because in saying yes to the ministry, you've said yes to the most important things in the entire planet, the most important things in all of history. And everything that you do is attached to what matters most, an indomitable, unperishable kingdom, so that you're giving and spending and being spent and devoting your whole life to what will last forever. There is no loss. But it is a call to die. It is a call to death. And it will come in a lot of different ways. Ministers are forged in adversity. Every minister. It was true of the Old Testament prophets. It was true of the apostles. It's been true throughout the annals of, of church history. Ministers are forged in adversity. And it will come to you in the ways you least expected. It won't be the things where you think, well, I could, I could suffer this and I could suffer that and it would be okay to, to deal with this and it would be difficult to manage, but I could handle that. The Lord will come to you in ways and in areas that you never expected. And it would be the least that you would perhaps have chosen yourself. And you think, well, why, why is that? Why are ministers, all ministers, forged in adversity? And the answer is because the Lord must break you. The Lord must break you. And he, he will break you. But he breaks you in order that you might be useful. And the only way that you can ever be of enduring use in the master's service is for you to be broken. Without it, you will never have depth. You'll never have depth in your ministry. You'll never have a whole range of skills in serving your people that you would have otherwise. You wouldn't be who you need to be by God's grace without it. You remember the language of the Apostle Paul, how he said, I am afflicted for your sakes. So that the minister is put into the crucible and the minister undergoes all manner of plowing and depths of suffering for the benefit of the people. 
It's for their sakes that the Lord does these things. And so it's a call to die. It's a call for you to get comfortable in what is uncomfortable. To actually acclimate under the cross, in shouldering the cross, to become comfortable with being uncomfortable, to, to learning what it means to lean into the pain in acquiescence and submission uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I mean, Paul tells Timothy, his young spiritual son and apprentice, he tells him, endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's indispensable. You have to endure hardness. It means that the minister always is seeking to do the difficult. Always seeking to do the difficult. Not creating cushion wherever that is is possible. Otherwise, the congregation suffers. Right? It's, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier. You think of the soldier's mentality and all that, that comes with that more than we can develop here, but you can begin to pull apart some of those threads. What does that entail to be a soldier? To run to the battle, to the gates, to, to be willing in, to shoulder the heaviest part for the, the team, the platoon or whatever, uh, to be able to put one in, oneself in harm's way uh, for the benefit of, of others. The fact is that in, in other ways, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you know, when you, when you stand up front, you will be shot at. Right? So when you, you stand up front, there's part of the package. And, and the fact is, and it has always been, that some of the gunfire is going to come from behind. Not those that you would have expected. And in those occasions, you know, the, the soldier doesn't pout and have self-pity and fall down and fuss. The soldier knows what it is that he signed up for. And his eyes are on the king. I'm a servant of the redeemer. I'm a servant of the head of the church. And we gladly shoulder those things for his glory and the good of souls and endure the hardness that he calls to. So first of all, I would exhort you to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, I would challenge you and charge you to be a servant of the word. So a servant of the word. You'll note, as I read a moment ago from cha uh, chapter 1, uh, they had, in Colossae, learned from Epaphras, right? They had been taught by him. He was a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your first calling is, after being a servant to, to, to the Lord, is to be a servant of the Word, right? Preaching is your bread and butter. You are called to, to preach and to labor in the Word in all of its various forms and to avoid every diversion from that task from being saturated in the Word and bringing forward that Word. There's a story told, I'm pretty sure it was by William J. of Bath. And um, he got onto a coach. The coach was full, so he went up on top. There was another passenger there with him. And the, the coachman is riding along, and the fellow, that stranger to him, was riding with him, kept asking the, the coachman questions. And he'd say, well, who lives over there in that hamlet? And the coachman would say, I don't know. And then they would go down further and they'd say, well, what are they going to do with this pasture here? How are they going to, what are they going to grow and develop there? Well, I don't know. And who lives over there in that town? I don't know. And on and on it went. Every time the answer is, I don't know. And eventually the man, in some bluster, turned to the coachman and said, what do you know? And he said, I know how to drive a coach. And for you, 
As a minister of the gospel, you are to know one thing preeminently, and that is how to preach and how to minister the Word of God. That's your task. You're to give yourself wholeheartedly and unreservedly to it. You're to do it fervently. You're to, as Paul tells Timothy, you're to give yourself to reading and to meditation. You're to study. You're to be applying yourself with all the fervency that you can. And that, that means continuous study, right? You've gone to seminary. That's good. But that's the beginning. And you need to continue to read until you bleed. Otherwise, your preaching will never stay fresh. If you stay here in Opelika for five years, 10 years, 20 years, or more, 30, 40, preaching every Wednesday, twice on the Sabbath, other occasions in addition to that, right, 150 plus sermons a year, you're never going to stay fresh if you're drawing out of the limited capacity of what you have right now, right? There has to be continued growth, study of the word, and stretching yourself and so on in order for your preaching to stay fresh. You've been given the bare basics, the tools in seminary, but you're to be digging deeper in so many ways. You'll, you'll see, as I have, that in 10 years from now, you're going to look back on and listen to perhaps the preaching that you do now. And you're going to be shocked by it. You're going to be even a little, at least for me, maybe not you, but embarrassed by it. And you think, wow, what was I thinking at, at the time? And that's a good thing. That's a sign of growth and of, of laboring as a minister of the Word, right? Paul says to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. In 1 Timothy 4, let your progress be evident to all. Not only to you, but your people should be able to say, it's the same man and some of the same themes, the same burden, same gifts, but his preaching's not what it was 10 years ago. He's a better preacher than he was 10 years before. But that labor as a servant of the Word is also tied to your life. Right? As McShane said, your people need your holiness. And your ministry in the Word is far greater than what they hear from you in the pulpit. What they see and observe, what they hear in, in their exposure to your life, they bring all of that with them into the pew. So that when they sit down in the pew and you open the book and you begin to preach it, it's not just this bare act of you're exegeting and expounding and applying the Word of God to them and they're receiving it. They're bringing with them you as a man and all that they know about you and all that they see in you. And so your life has to be a life that's molded by the Word and living out of the Word and holiness born that is its own testimony and message uh, to the people. But then thirdly, you need to be a servant to the people. So a servant to Christ, a servant to the Word, servant of the Word, and a servant to the people. You'll notice here that it says of Epaphras, uh, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. I bear record, him record, that he hath great zeal for you. So he's laboring fervently for you, and he has great zeal for you. You are called and charged by the Word of God to be a servant of the people. You are their servant above all others. Other ministers will come into your pulpit and they'll preach. And they'll hear preaching elsewhere. And they'll read books and so on. But you are in a unique capacity. The man that God has given to them. 
as their minister, as their servant, as their, as their pastor. You are their servant. They are not your master. Congregation, hear me. He's your servant, but you're not his master. His master is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given authority, Pastor Shelton. And we live in an egalitarian age, which has flattened everything, right? There are no more superiors, inferiors, and equals, as the fifth commandment says, and so on. But that authority is given not for you, but always and forever for the benefit for those under your care and rule and oversight. So the authority is always for them as husband, as pastor, you know, people in the workplace, magistrates, and so on and so forth. It's in the service of the people itself and in, in, in their benefit. You know, it's a precious thing because you've been here as a, as a student, you've labored as supply, uh, you're Logan Shelton, they've known you as Logan, and from here on, you are pastor. You're Pastor Shelton. And they should think of you that way, and they should refer to you that way. And it's a term of endearment, right? Pastor means shepherd. There's something very affectionate, and I think perhaps more for the pastor than even the people at times, perhaps like a, a father who hears the word daddy. It's more to him, perhaps, than even the children. For, for pastors, that word pastor is a word of, of endearment, but it reflects the service that you have uh, to these, these people. You're a servant of the people. That means leading them. And leading them means a measure of loneliness. Right? Leadership is lonely. And it's, it's inescapably the case. I mean, your people... I trust will love you and love you dearly. You will love them dearly. And you'll have, I hope, you know, godly elders that you'll be very close with, tied in the yoke together with. You'll have fellow presbyters, ministers in the presbytery, all of whom will be a close source of fellowship and so on. But when it comes to you as the pastor of this congregation, you stand alone. And you're going to feel that loneliness, that loneliness, because it's part of what the Lord's called you to and serving this people. The beautiful thing, of course, is you're always alone in one sense and never alone because it's in those times and especially that you have an acute sense the Lord will not leave you or forsake you, that there is nearness to him, that he stands with you. Paul says in, in his last chapter that he ever wrote, he says, all men have forsaken me. He's alone, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And there's going to be sweetness in that loneliness of fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. To serve the people, you need wisdom. Lots of people have the ability to do public speaking. They can speak clearly and even eloquently and cogently, persuasively. That's not what makes a minister. There's plenty of people that have that. It's part of the gifts. Wisdom is what is needed. Wisdom to serve the people, to be able to grow out of the depths of your experience in the ministry of the word and your service and interaction and interface and knowledge of the people, to be able to exercise your leadership with wisdom. That includes imparting strength to the people, right? Imparting strength to your fellow elders, but imparting strength to the people themselves. They have to see in you, hear from you, and draw from you strength. Strength that you don't have in yourself, but strength that you yourself have gotten from, 
from the Lord Jesus Christ in your fellowship with him so that out of that strength, they too were able to draw strength. So that in, in their nightmares and heartaches and brokenness and in upheaval and crazy stuff in society and difficulties and serious public challenges within the congregation and the people are feeling insecure and they're feeling unstable, they're going to depend on drawing strength from you as their servant and as the leader of the people. And if you're falling apart in, into, a, in, in, into a puddle and you're insecure and you're floundering, that's going to be imparted to them, right? There has to be serving them by lifting heavy for their benefit and parting strength to them. It means serving them and shepherding and caring for their souls and being there to help them through all of the complexities that they, they face. But notice here, and I hasten on, that in verse 12, serving the people includes always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Every minister in this room will say, ministers are called to pray. Acts 6, 4. We're to give ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. And every minister here will say, you know, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the people. We need to be praying more, and so on and so forth. That will not cut it. It's no good for you as some other ministers to be able to say that perpetually for all of their ministry. You need to actually be always laboring fervently for the people. And what I would challenge you with is this. And I wish that I, that the, that I had grabbed a hold of this much earlier in my ministry than I did. Make prayer for the people a matter of conscience. Bind yourself to it. That you are not allowed for a day, much less days to pass without laboring fervently for them in prayer. Make it a matter of conscience so that you're sick or things are in upheaval or you're out until two in the morning or you're in some far-flung country or you're traveling on a plane or whatever. It doesn't matter because your conscience is actually bound to it so that it's not possible for it not to happen, to be laboring always fervently for them in the prayer. You need to be more quick to run to your closet than to your computer. The closet is what is needed, not the computer. You can't be everywhere, but you can pray for everybody that is everywhere. You can't, be, you can't fix everything in your congregation, but you can pray for everything. Remember the words of Jesus when the disciples came in their consternation and Jesus replied and said, these come not out but by prayer and fasting. You're going to find that's true. There are problems that you need to solve and can't solve that are only going to be solved not by your wit and wisdom, but by what you're doing where no one else sees on your knees. And how often the Lord will confirm to you that He will bring about and answer your prayers things that you banging your head all day against the wall would never be able to solve. Charge you. Be fervent in prayer. Always laboring in fervency for your people. Well, you think to yourself, I'm a servant of Christ, I'm a servant of the Word, I'm a servant of the people. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is absolutely no one. No minister, the best and brightest in the history of the world. Paul says our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of the Lord, that He is pleased to make His power manifest through all of our brokenness, in order that he might receive all of the glory and praise. And so you have to come to the one who has all fullness 
from which we receive grace for grace and draw out of that fullness in communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ, drawing in dependence by faith all of the resources and riches that are to be found in him so that your sufficiency, not in theory, but in reality, is found in him. May God give you grace, Pastor Shelton, as you venture out in the strength of the Lord to fulfill the labor that has been committed to you as a minister of the gospel.